Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and I'm here today with David Onekink, Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Utrecht here in the Netherlands to discuss his latest book, The Delightful, The Dutch in the Early Modern World, A History of Global Power, out 20, 2019 with Cambridge University Press. Oh, stumbling over my own mouth. Hello, David, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, good morning, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm very good. Um, the, sort of seeing the snow disappearing um, outside of the window and uh, still in lockdown, of course, but um, all the time of the world to read books, right? Uh, right. Yep. Did, did, you, uh, did you skate this weekend? Um, I, I, I didn't. I'm a very bad skater, but, but our house sort of overlooks uh, a small channel and, I, and we saw the people skating and it's, it's delightful. It's like, you know, watching 17th century Dutch paintings. It's uh, great. <laughs> yeah. It really is. Uh, for our listeners, we're recording in mid-February 2021, and we have winter in the Netherlands right now. And it is, I mean, as David said, it's delightful. The ponds and the smaller waterways are frozen. We've got some snow. Everyone was outside and enjoying it over the weekend. Um, and the stereotypes tend to be true. Dutchies love their winter, love to skate. That is true. And it's it's the sort of winter we thought we wouldn't have anymore, you know, because of global climate change. It's really warming up here. but. Um... Finally, we have ice and snow, so uh, yeah. Yeah, we're always worried it'll be our last good winter. But uh, you know, um, I went into the center this this weekend. I live right outside the center, um, and it was just gorgeous. There was a nip in the air. Dutch flags were flying from 17th century windows, and lanky blondes were racing down frozen canals on their skates. It was this picture perfect Dutch scene. And I uh, was just coming off reading this book, right? And so I was just overwhelmed by the connection between this place and this history. These homes built from the wealth garnered through global, the global trade seemed to like drive home everything I'd read. And it was stunning. So my first question for you is an unusual one, possibly personal, possibly silly. I'm not sure, but I'm going to ask it anyway. As a Dutchman and an historian of the early modern period, do you feel this connection sometimes? Yeah, you feel the connection because you are really living in a museum, of course, and especially if you're living in one of the old Dutch cities like me. I'm living in in Utrecht, which is really a sort of late medieval 17th century city. Um, so, so you're living inside. But but on the other hand, you know, if if you've travelled around, I've travelled a bit. I, I also noticed that you know the Netherlands is not just the Netherlands. You know, it's part of a of a bigger world. And um, and we go abroad, and and the world comes here. So um, it's 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 the past, but it's also the present that are that are intimately connected, and and that's fascinating. Yeah, it really is. This is, I mean, Utrecht in, uh, is is this beautiful, and it's a little it's older than Amsterdam, and it has like a, a more medieval center, but you can still see the golden age there as well. 
the so-called golden age. But it is, it's interesting. Um, this, this history really drives home your point though, that the Dutch go everywhere and everyone comes here. And that's a pretty important part of the history of the Dutch Republic. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, it, it is a fascinating history. And um, um, of course, if you live in the Netherlands, we, we tend to feel that our country is unique, uh, which of course it isn't. Uh, but it's still a fascinating story to tell. And um, and that's what, of course, we try to do in, in this book. Well, yeah. everyone's unique, yeah. right? That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So intellectually, this book is right in your wheelhouse. So your first book, The Anglo-Dutch fi- Favorite, The Career of Hans Willem Bentinck, First Earl of Portland, Uh, is a bit of a biography, but mostly you use him as a vehicle to explore the power of the Dutch Republic in the late 17th century. And then your second work, De Gerd van Utrecht, uh, which translates to The Peace of Utrecht, talks about, and I'm going to quote from the publisher here, quote, the first worldwide war, the War of Spanish Succession, ended in 1713 with the Peace of Utrecht. The Dutch Republic, allied with England and her empire, played a key role in this conflict that was fought in both Europe and North America, and is still considered a fundamental, still considered fundamental for modern international relations. So we've got that, and then articles and essays you publish show more of an interest in uh, uh, the Reformation and cultural history, but still international relations. So this this book is very logical for, but um, it's a logical next step for you. But at the same time, it's much more global rather than European in scope. And so I'm wondering how you chose to move in that direction. Yeah, well, well, thank you. You know, it's, it's a good question, and and you you sort of reflect on on on, on your own uh, sort of development as, as a historian. I was trained as a historian of diplomacy and international relations, as you say. And and here in Utrecht, we have a, a department of history of international relations, which is really contemporary, right? So we reflect on on uh, European Union and NATO and and all, and all that. But I really wanted to do the older history, but but um, and it's boring history in a sense, you know, international relations. You know, the classic diplomatic history is completely out of fashion since the 1960s and 70s. Um, Not sexy, no. No, but but of course it changed, and and that's why my interest um, uh, developed because you know ever since you know the early 21st century, obviously after. Uh, 9/11, we, we realized that international relations is not just about you know the military or or or, or the diplomacy itself. You know, it's about much more. It's also about culture. It's also about religion. Um, and that's why my interest developed. But because my first book, as you mentioned, Earl of Portland, who was the favorite of of uh, William of Orange, you know, the famous King of England after the Glorious Revolution. Um, he was a Calvinist. He was a devoted Protestant, and, and you see that that foreign policy uh, connected with religious views and, and and also cultural views, you know, and sort of an anti-French sentiment which developed in in in, in these times. Um, so what I try to do is to sort of um, connect to to um, uh, um, to a process that that's been going on in this field, and to see international relations also as a cultural phenomenon. Um, and that's why I became interested in in important, but also in the Peace of Utrecht, which is a you know is, is a founding uh, moment for European diplomacy, uh, but also for a European culture in which people started to think not just about war, but for instance also about peace. And so, what what connects us as Europeans? Do we actually have one culture, a European culture that binds us, and could that be a foundation for peace? Um, so, so in that sense, you know, my my research developed from 
um, from, from classic diplomacy into a sort of European cultural history. And as you say, um, lately in this latest book, in, in a sort of a, a global history of the Dutch Republic, in which we still try to, to connect to, you know, to diplomacy and, and, and warfare, because there was a lot of warfare, unfortunately, in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just about that. It's not about treaties and battles. It's about a lot more. And that's what we really try to do in, in this book. So you you say we, and I think it's probably a good time to talk about your co-author, Gijs Ramelsa, who died unexpectedly entirely too young in November of last year at the age of 42, yeah? That's correct, yes. No, it was a, yeah. Yeah, it was an enormous shock. And um, he was my co-author, but also a very good friend. We've been friends for about 20 years. Um, and yeah, we wrote this book together because it was a really good um, um, cooperation because we really helped each other with, with writing this. We have complementing expertises and also complementing uh, personalities. So it, it worked really good and, and I really miss him. And um, But it, it's good to mention that this book is as much, um, um, probably more so his book, his book than mine. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, and you have you say you have uh, complementing specialties. What do, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's right. So, so Gijs and I, we've been really good friends, and and we studied together in London twenty years ago. And Gijs was really specialized in economic history. Um, that was really his forte, and also naval history. And of course, you cannot write about the Dutch in the seventeenth century without you know the economic expansion, uh, East India Company, and all that, and and the economic boom that really was part of, of the Dutch miracle in the late 16th and 17th century. Um, and I, as I said, was more interested in diplomacy and, and European history. So we thought, you know, this is really something we can do together. Um, so basically what we did is we alternated chapters. Um, so he wrote about his themes and I wrote about my themes. And of course, we talked a lot uh, to each other um, uh, about how we should develop this book. Um, but it's really a joint enterprise, a bit of a mm-hmm. challenge as well. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, how did it work out all right? I'll leave that to the reader. Yeah, no, I think so. Um, it's, collaboration is really rare in history. There, there are places where they do it all the time. It seems like the people in the hard sciences never work alone. But um, it's it's still pretty rare in history to write with others. Um, and it seems to have worked very well here. Do you Did you... Did you talk a lot um, while you were writing? Did you read each other's work and comment? Yeah, yeah, both. But 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 you're right. You know, it's really hard to write history together, and especially for me, I really like to work alone. It's it's like you know, the historians feel that we have a sort of intuition, and 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 we can we can choose anecdotes and stories that we really feel explain uh, what we're trying to say. So it is a part. It's sort of an individual um, enterprise. Um, but it worked out all right because we talked a lot and, and before we actually started writing, we discussed how we were organizing this book. Um, and basically, we did a, a did a bit of both, right? So we, we wrote our own sections um, and we had complete freedom within those sections. Uh, but before we did that, we, we really discussed how we were going to divide the sections and what the sections should be all about. Um, so if you look at the book, it has a very clear structure. Um, it's it's very uh, clearly organized, but but within that organization, we we felt we had a lot of freedom uh, to do our thing, and then of course we read each other's chapters um, over and over again, and and discussed them and threw bits out, and you know that's that's how it works. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I want to say just, I'm very sorry about your loss of your friend and, uh, and, and, and as an historian as well, I read, um, a rev- I read a, de- a dedication, a story of his life. And, um, it ended with Chais had a heart in Snellepen and in Gotthard, a quick pen and a big heart. That's right. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's about as kind an epitaph as an historian can hope for. I think so too. And it's absolutely true in his case. Yeah. Well, thanks for noticing this. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, and I was, when I was reading this, I was really shocked by how, and I mean shocked because it's so good, but it's so rare that this book is so scaffolded and you introduce what you're going to do and it, 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 there's a symmetry to it you don't see very often. And that makes sense to think about how you would have discussed this and then set out to write your own parts, but make them speak to each other. Yeah, that's right. And in a sense, for us, it was also a a learning process. You know, if you write a book on your own, you feel a little bit more uh, liberty to to um, to develop a specific structure. But here we felt, you know, we really have to do it like this or it becomes a more of a thing. Uh, but the other thing is we also wanted to, um, you know, write for a sort of general interested public, but also specifically for students. Um, and, and we thought, you know, students really sort of first need to sort of short overview and, and then get into um, uh, then get into the details. And also because we are both teachers, um, that that's, may actually help us, um, have helped us to, to develop this particular structure. Um, you know, for students, it's really helpful to, to know what they're going to read about um, before actually reading all this stuff about which they think, why do I need to know this, right? So um, I think our, sort of our background um, explains a little bit why, why we did it like this. Um, speaking of, this, this book comes with an extensive and useful front matter, historical maps, including a Netherlands that is almost unrecognizable from 1648, um, a chronicle, chronological list of town officials, pensioners is the Dutch term, or is the term that the Dutch use, um, and provincial executives, which is stadtholders. Um, a very detailed timeline, and these things are rarer in academic historical monographs than one might think. So I was, I was thinking that this was a good clue to your intent that this was meant for, uh, for students, but also non-specialists too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's 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 a fine balance, right? Because you also want your your colleagues to be interested in what you write, um, uh, and at, at and at the same time attract a different kind of uh, public. Mm-hmm. So it's um, yeah. You know, I, I I read this cover to cover, which is I will admit I rarely do that with academic historical books. Um, you know, they're just that's not what they're built for. And I, as I said, as I told you before we started recording, I've passed this along to my partner who does some sort of software tech business. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't know. I can't pay attention because uh, it's just readable and accessible, and explains where we live. But it's, it, I learned a great deal as well as an early modern historian. So you do, you you managed both. Um, well done. Thank you. <laughs> I think part of that is your source material. So let's talk about that. What did you find most useful? What do you What did you use, and what did you love? Well, well, well. First of all, um, um, we, we sort of learned a little bit with um, with the book I wrote on the piece of Utrecht, which is in Dutch and which is on a very limited topic. But but I but I sort of realized, and and and, and this is the thing: if you're if you're an academic historian, you spend so much time doing very detailed stuff, which only a couple of colleagues will actually read. 
Um, and and we both felt, you know, there's there's so so many interesting things which are slightly outside of your expertise. And there's there's you know talking with um, uh, Harun and the sea of stories. You know, there is a sea of stories out there. There is so much material and so many interesting things happened. And we were simply captivated by the stories. Um, and so um, so that's really I think part of the thing that, that drove us and, and as you can as, as you say you know in, in in the book there's there's a lot of argument you know an official story but also a lot of tiny stories which to me as a historian become more interesting and interesting you know the the micro history the small stories the, the personal issues and how they connect to to a much bigger story um so it's um but from a pragmatic point of view um so you, you cannot research all of this that is impossible for for a monograph like this right because you're dealing with 300 years of history um and it's a global history so it's impossible to rely on primary sources um so what we did is we basically we see this as a, as a synthesis you know a sort of um an overview of of the research that's been doing been done by our colleagues over the last 20 30 years uh, the latest insights, you know, new developments. Uh, but inside, we felt the liberty to, you know, include all kinds of, of anecdotes and small stories. Uh, and we picked, you know, we picked a number of primary sources which we thought were fascinating and sort of visualize uh, the story. And also, and I maybe we can talk about this if if we have time. But but I also realized that um and and Gijs as well because we got a fellowship from the um amsterdam maritime museum uh, where we wrote part of this book we realized that a lot of historians like us don't use visual visual material right we, we really believe that history is text um, and so we included also analysis of of paintings but also actually physical objects and and as you started you know this 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 meeting uh, talking about the city and we realized that you know the history is all around us you know the, the houses we see in central amsterdam you know they are part of the story as well so we really wanted to include that uh, that story as well yeah and you include a lot of those like images there's a figure one is a striking aerial photo of fort Bhutan in eastern Groningen, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right um, there's a delightful painting of a dutch man of war ramming a spanish ship that i have to admit like made me cheer uh, satirical cartoons, you know, the, the like, so it's, you've, uh, you really do, um, well, and I think, uh, you, this book is, you know, there's this chronological story and then I feel like you stop and stop the story and take a second and look at it, look at a topic in detail, uh, which is really enjoyable. And that's a place where you really do this conversation about the material culture, the, the, as you say, the objects, the buildings, um, which humanizes, narrows it. It brings the story to a small enough place where uh, I think it, that it really shines, and you get to look at these little things, these little micro stories, as you say, that tell the bigger story. Yeah, that, that's right. And I, I, I really, as an historian, I actually, of course, for an art historian, this is not new. But as an historian, I really learned to look. Um, and I, I remember that specifically one moment in in the Maritime Museum, and we were we were actually writing an article on 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 um, the 17th century uh, navy, and there's this incredibly wonderful painting um, of a of a battle, and you know naval battles in the 17th century, paintings of naval battles are absolutely boring, and people skip them, and for good reason. Uh, but 
That's, that's right. But 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 what we notice is if if you just sit there and I actually looked at the painting for one hour, just looking, right? Not asking questions, not analyzing, not not but just looking at what you see and and suddenly there was a world out there. You know, you saw the faces of individual people, we saw flags of specific cities and we, we wondered, you know, why are these flags represented? Is it a is it is it is it, a, is it basically a cult? Is is it, is it is it about culture or is it about war? Or obviously it's about both. Um, and we saw all these tiny details. Uh, you know, a number of Spanish people uh, who were actually, you know, drowning in in, in the sea, and, and we found anecdotes about what actually happened. And suddenly we we realized that you know a, a painting says so much about about what you need a lot of words for it to describe. Um, and again, of course, if you're if you're an art historian, this is not something new. But but we try to to integrate all this together. And for us, it was a very enjoyable, but also a, a sort of learning curve. Yeah, to do this. And uh, and as you say, so to go back to to your question, you know, we we felt we we really need needed to tell the story. So some of the things we wrote are really the sort of classical story of of the netherlands the dutch revolts um and you know we need to know all these things about high politics how the spanish sort of tried to get the netherlands back in the late 16th century uh, about the battles that took place because battles are actually important uh, but we also realized that the battles are not something you can write about cleanly from a distance and you know who won and who didn't win uh, but it's also a very human story and and i i, I remember uh, writing about these these battles that I gave a presentation a couple of years ago, um, and I gave a presentation on 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 the piece of Utrecht and and one of the famous battles that took place in the 18th century that that you know we don't really care about anymore because it's not really about the battle it is about the story and how humans experience this. But what I came across and and I remember that my public and that for me was a sort of learning moment. My public responded to one particular uh, illustration. And that was not of the battle. It was not of any of the arguments I, I put forward. It was uh, an engraving of a of a horse that actually died on the battlefield, and it was such a beautiful engraving, um, and so much detail of the horse that was sort of falling down. And um, and there is actually a series. So uh, von Hürtenberg, who was a 17th century painter. Uh, but he made a number of sketches of these horses that he actually must have seen, I presume, on the battlefield because they were so lifelike. Um, and suddenly we thought, you know, this is a way to combine, you know, the big story, which is important, uh, to a very small and tiny story and of the things that, you know, are almost forgotten. I mean, who cares about a dying 17th century horse? You know? Well, of course, there's the movie now about the war horse, but um, yeah, but um so I mean it's 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 not original, but but you know we we try to combine all these these things and um, yeah so um yeah okay um oh and it's it's I it uh, this is my favorite kind of history let me say that I'm just making noises now so let me actually use words um I particularly love um uh, the study of material culture and how that leads I'm, I consider myself a microhistorian as well and it's my favorite history to read. Um, but like, so I want to take a little, a minute to talk about a couple of the small stories that you tell, um, along the way. And one of my favorite examples is your discussion of the Dutch identity. Um, so there's a place like, I would, I would like you to talk about the process, how you manage this, what you did, like the sources you consulted and kind of the arguments you come to about the development of a Dutch identity in the early modern era. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that 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 is a fascinating story, and and you know, there's there's been a lot of debate among Dutch historians um, about how Dutch identity evolved, and and the classic story is really that you know the Dutch tried to gain independence from the Spanish, uh, but that is a little bit complicated. But, but yeah, in in a sense, just like in the United States, you know, what is the actual identity of the Netherlands before it, um, uh, the, the the Dutch revolt? Um, and that's very difficult because the, the country you have now as the Netherlands never used to be a country in the first place. It was all, always part of a, of, of a bigger, what they call a dynastic conglomerate, which is a, a technical term to explain that all the states in early modern Europe, you know, basically were part of a, of, of a dynasty. Uh, of course, it doesn't mean that there were no identities. There were local identities, provincial identities, religious identities, obviously, that, that developed um, and they're also all layered identities, right? Um, but but how do you how do you create a state with an identity? Well, it, it didn't really occur to people that they needed an identity because, of course, that's really a 19th century thing um, that we need a specific identity as a state. Uh, but still, what you see developing in the late 16th century is that it is is that um, a lot of citizens in the Low Countries feel that they are very different from the Spanish. And, and the king of Spain that rules over them. Um, at the same time, at the same time, it is seen as a civil war. So there's actually a lot of people who are loyal uh, to the Spanish, and they remain Catholic. Um, so you know, it, it's not simply a war of the Spanish against the Dutch. So that heroic story is is a little bit complicated now. But at the same time, you see that people start to develop an identity, and it's very much related to the Dutch Revolt. Um, so there's been some recent research in how individual people as well you know they they prize themselves they feel they are patriots because they have actually fought against spain um and then you sort of see the development of a dual identity you know a dutch patriot is someone who fights against you know the spanish empire and is a good protestant and they become the sort of first rank citizens uh, but the next step of course is how do you how do you visualize this you know how do you make clear that that this is this is what we are now, one of the things they do is to go back to, to Roman age. Um, so there was a revolt of, of Batavia, which was a province of the Roman Empire, in which the Batavians fought against the Roman Empire. And so you see the development of what they call the Batavian myth. Um, so we've done the same, you know, we've done it 1500 years ago against the Romans, and now we do it against, uh, against the Spanish. Um, but this is really sort of for the intellectual elite. Um, and the, the other thing you need is to um, to keep the, the, so the Netherlands um, uh, consists of a number of provinces. You know, eventually they become seven provinces, and 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 these sort of are rivals. You know, they really don't always work together. But then they come up with this imagery of of a lion with seven arrows, for instance. You know, only if the lion holds the seven arrows together, uh, then we can then we can uh, keep the unity. Um, so all these sort of images develop, and um, it's not quite a national identity in the modern sense. Um, a lot of historians don't believe that there is such a thing, um, but other historians increasingly realize that at least you see a development towards uh, some sort of a national identity. And, and, and then the pictures are, are really interesting here. So the lion with the seven arrows, um, there's a picture of a garden, it's called the Dutch Garden. Um, and it's really uh, visualized the territory which is shielded from from the Spanish. 
and all these these images sort of uh, develop in the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And a, a point that you make very well is that this the identity isn't just conducted in opposition to the Spanish, but in concert with local identities. So you can be Dutch and um, right, and that also this is a multi level. This is not just a top down kind of uh, projection. Yes, absolutely. So it's um, it, it's it's complex. You know, it's it, it it's not a single identity. People don't have a single identity. They have multiple identities. But a state, in a sense, also. And in the Netherlands, which is incredibly localized, you see, as you say, um, you, you see that you know the cities and the provinces and the state all try to, you know, put forward their identity, and it becomes a very complex uh, unit. And basically, what, what I did in 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 my research, which is not in this book, but but goes back to the painting I saw. This was a painting of um, of one of the battles I described, and, and you can see uh, a lot of flags. And you see the Dutch flag, and you see provincial flags, and you see local flags, but you also see uh, religious flags. Um, and in a sense, the painting shows us how incredibly complex uh, a state, or or more to the point, how incredibly complex a nation is. Um, and also, of course, how identity is not something fixed, but sort of changes through time and through circumstances and um, and this I think is one of the main things we wanted to tell in this book it's also about the development and complexity about um, about Dutch identity which as the book I think also explains is not really Dutch at all <laughs> that's maybe we can talk about later yes yeah. you know and I, it's important and it's a timely point as one of you know is in everywhere in Europe and possibly the world um, our discussion of like identity and what it means to be Dutch now is such a heated and you know an incredibly closely held discourse. It's a it's important to remember that that's a very old discussion. Yes, no, that that that's right. It it it's an old discussion, the development and of of identity and also the development of opposing identities because that's of course how identities become very strong you know what we are is basically what what the enemy is not and and mm-hmm. that is part of an of an ongoing ancient story that of course changes all the time but 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 the basic ingredients um of this process are are in a sense always the same right um another small case history i want to discuss is the story of maurice the prince of the netherlands and his uh-huh. uh in his relationship with the shogun of Japan, mm-hmm. can you tell our can you tell our listeners about this? Yeah, no, this is this is interesting. So, um, so the Netherlands becomes a, a global um, uh, power basically, and and I think one of the stories we tell is it's about the West Indian Company that operates um, in the Atlantic and, and, and mainly North and a little bit South America, and the East Indian Company that that operates in um, in, in Asia and, and the Indian Ocean. And the East India Company becomes the first stock market, uh, uh, stock operated company in, in the world. And that, that is a fascinating story in itself. Uh, the problem here, however, is that it is a commercial company. Um, it is not, and that's very much unlike uh, the Spanish Empire, of course. It's not um, operated by the sovereign or, or the king. It is a commercial company operated by merchants. Uh, it is still connected, however, to, to the state. Um, but in a sense, you know, it's the merchants that decide what they're going to do. But what do you do if you're a merchant and you want to trade in Japan? And in Japan, you have a shogun and the shogun, you know, he wants to uh, uh, maybe start diplomatic relations. Now, the East India Company can start diplomatic relations. Um, but how do you uh, 
you know, start diplomatic relations as emergence. So you say, you know, basically they argue we come in the name of, of the sovereign of the Netherlands, but there's a problem because the Netherlands don't have a sovereign because they got rid of the King of Spain. Uh, so what do we tell them? Uh, so basically you lie. So basically you say, you know, we have Prince Morris who is, um, and, and maybe for the listeners, so in the Netherlands, you don't have a king. Uh, there is a prince, but he's not prince of the Netherlands, but he has a noble title and he has some important offices uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, but basically what they say, you know, we present him as a king. And then suddenly you have two kings. You have the Shogun, who, by the way, is also not a king, but still, you know, the actual ruler uh, of Japan. And you present Morris as, 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 as the king of the Netherlands. And, and suddenly it works and you have a sort of diplomatic um, uh, balance um, that, that seems to work out. And the story of Japan is, is fascinating anyway, because, of course, the, the Dutch were, um, after 16. 52, uh, the only Europeans that were allowed to trade uh, in Japan for about 200 years. And, and that alone is a, is a remarkable story. Um, so the VOC, uh, the VOC does, does the, does the VOC have to do a lot of this, right? Like negotiating and figuring out who it is um, and how to deal with foreign powers. <laughs> Yeah, so especially, you know, you know, if we have the image of, if you think about European imperialism, you know, we really have the image that, you know, the Europeans are, are mightier, you know, they have the technological advantage, they have military advantage, you know, and they come there and they, yeah, you know, they basically build an empire. But in the 17th century, still, this is a lot more complicated. So there are places where the Europeans are absolutely superior. And, and you see this, um, of course, in the New World, well, not, not in the first uh, stages, but, but later, you know, this, this develops very quickly uh, in Latin America with the Spanish Empire. Uh, but in Asia, this is a very different story because a, a lot of these, you know, places, they have kingdoms that are very well organized and economically, militarily, uh, politically very strong and solid. So you just don't come there and conquer, you know, the place where you are. Um, so basically, the East India Company needs to find out and check, you know, what is our position in the place that we are. Uh, and in some of the places, you know, they can actually, they have military power. So a famous example for the Dutch is, of course, um, Indonesia, Batavia, uh, where they are a lot stronger. Uh, Taiwan, uh, which is conquered for, for a while. But Japan is a very different story because Japan is a very centralized and strong state. And, and here you, you you cannot come with with, with guns and uh, and cannons. Um, you, you have to finding your way by by diplomacy. So basically, what the VUC, the East India Company, does is they they try to figure out their position um, in in the regional power game, uh, and it's basically different everywhere. Um, and so you, you can't say that the VUC has a dominant or or not a dominant position in Asia. It really depends on on local circumstances. And what you see is the Dutch, just like the Portuguese and, and the British, they, they just become one of the, the regional powers um, um, in Eastern Asia. And this changes, of course, in the 19th century. But, but, in, but in the period that we are studying, it's, everything is a lot more in flux. And of course, that you know, uh, also makes it a very complicated but also, also fascinating story. And, and they have to find ways to, to get in because they want to earn money. Um, you know, they want to trade and um, they do anything, basically. The Dutch have a terrible um, uh, reputation. Um, all of the European powers say, now the Dutch would do anything to trade. You know, they don't believe in God. They only believe in money. Um, and to an extent, that is actually true. 
<laughs> well, I mean, it, it also doesn't. I mean, like this this is done in in part. That reputation comes from the fact that it's no one's trading with the Dutch government, or you're you're trading with a company, right? I mean, it's it's not like you're not talking to the, a church member or something when you're dealing with the VOC. No, that's right. But but at the same time, you know, this this the whole story that you know this is you know the, the Spanish were interested in God and gold, right? So they sent the Jesuits and they sent you know the the, um, uh, the, the traders and the military. And the story is that you know the Dutch weren't really interested. But lately, especially over the last two or three years, there's been done a lot of research to say you know this is this is too simplistic because on the East India Company ships. There were a lot of, of, of ministers, and they actually tried to um, establish contacts with also with religious groups in, in, in well, not so much in Japan because it was forbidden, uh, but for instance on Ceylon, but and also in um, in Batavia, there were a lot of people converted to Christianity. Taiwan was a spectacular success for thousands of uh, Chinese converted to Christianity. Um, so the, the story is, you know, the whole, and, and this is a story that Dutch historians have really in the past. Um, uh, brought forward to say, you know, we didn't, you know, spread European civilization. We were just there to trade. Um, but we realize now that, that the story is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's such a great thing about history. You know, we we have this idea of what happened and we're constantly refining and nuancing it. It's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Um, so we're closing in on the end of our time here. So I want to tie up a few loose ends. Um, so first question, uh, you start with Henry Hudson. Was this a deliberate choice? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a good question. It, it is deliberate in the sense that uh, part of the reason I started to write this book, well, together with Heiss, of course, was um, of my teaching experience in the United States. Um, and I was um, I spent some time in William and Mary College in Virginia and UCLA in Los Angeles, which were both unforgettable, very different places, of course, um, but but both wonderful places uh, to be. And 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 I interacted with with students, um, me as a as a Dutch teacher and American um, uh, students, and and we talked about these issues. And I, I gave a course on the Dutch Golden Age and. I was very happy to, to see that students were interested, um, obviously because there is a connection between the Netherlands and the United States. But he also found out that, you know, of course, their perspective uh, on Dutch and more generally on European history is very much different from my own um, uh, perspective. And, and, and you know, I, I learned a lot from my students in, in the time I spent there. Um, but I think part of the reason why we started this book with Henry Hudson um, was that we wanted to show that, you know, Dutch history is not simply Dutch history. It is connected to global history, what we just talked about. Um, and it's, by the way, it's not just Dutch people who went abroad. Uh, you know, most of the people who are um, uh, in the service of the East India Company and the West India Company were actually foreigners. About 50 or 60% of those people were Europeans, Germans, British, Norwegians, and all that. Uh, but Henry Hudson, of course, is a famous example of someone who was uh, an Englishman in the service of the uh, Dutch East India Company, uh, who explored part of, of, of what later became um, um, uh, America. Um, um, so uh, we really wanted to tell this story, how all these things are connected, that U.S. history is also intimately connected to, um, to Dutch history. Uh, and this, this, you know, this example really comes from, from the period I spent in the United States. 
Yeah, um, we I can see that influence, and I think it also is an interesting. Uh, it's a good way to tie in with how you close or not quite close the book, but uh, when you talk about um, the exploitation, right? Because the the story of the, the global expansion in the early modern era has a lot to do with um, the exploitation of some unwilling participants. Yes, the involuntary migration. Yeah, so we, we talk about we talk about a, a lot about migration. So we argue that you know the Dutch Republic is is a hub of global migration of European migration. So a lot of people you know travel to Amsterdam in the 17th century because that's where the work is. You know, so Norwegians travel to Amsterdam. They take surfers and they go to America. They go to Indonesia. They go to all these places all over the world. Uh, but of course, the Dutch were very active as well in um, in the slave trade, which of course is a topic that has been heavily researched um, um, in the last 20, 30 years in the Netherlands, but, but 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 even more so now. So actually recently, one or two years ago, um, a, a book appeared on um, uh, the role of cities in, in slave trade, uh, especially Amsterdam, uh, of course. And we know that the Dutch were very active in, in, in slave trade um, in the Atlantic, um, part of the thing uh, things they've they've been doing is to make sure that the Spanish Empire um, um, was was supplied with slaves from Africa because the Spanish didn't have any footholds um, in Africa and the Dutch did. Um, so they transported a lot of slaves in the 17th century to um, um, yeah to Spanish America, and they basically this was taken over uh, in the 18th century by by the British after the Peace of Utrecht. But the story that is, is much less known is that, uh, so the, the, the feeling was always that in the East, the East India Company, they were really interested in slavery. You know, they were, they were dealing in spices and, and, and all these things. Uh, but we now know that this is not true. So also in Asia, uh, the Dutch were very active in, in slave trade. Um, and of course, you know, this is a very important um, story that, that needs to be told. And, and we spent quite a lot of pages in the book uh, telling this story mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely um and it's it's something uh, that we're discussing like just at a greater length all the time and just um incorporating it in the history this is not a separate story it's part of the broad story right it's, which is yeah it's in it, it's that and it's and it's not just the you know the um it, it I, I was very interested also in 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 the ethical discussions that that were taking place because what, what you actually see and this is actually quite astounding you know you could argue that say you know in the 17th century you know there, there was not a feeling that you know slavery was something wrong because everyone did this but the dutch story tells a very interesting um, um it's a very interesting story because in the early 17th century there were a lot of Dutch uh, intellectuals, uh, ministers in the church who argue that slavery is a terrible thing. You know, it's really a sin. You cannot do this. It's what the Spanish do. And the Spanish are horrible. We know this. (laughs) So we cannot do this. Um, And slave trade and slavery was universally condemned. And then suddenly in the early 17th century, this flips. And the West India Company becomes very interested in slave trade because it's profitable. And there were always people who were against it, but they the voices sort of died down in, in during the course of the 17th century. And then suddenly also ministers of the church also flipped to say, you know, slavery is fine. You know, it, it already happened in the Bible and, you know, it's profitable. So, so why not do this? And I was fascinated by this, that in the early 17th century, there's a lot of voices against slave trade. 
And then in the late 17th century, they sort of are silent. Um, and 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 this is quite and this is quite remarkable. Um, and you know we we, know, we don't know why this is. You know it's it's also a very pragmatic thing because you know if you're a troublemaker, if you go to Suriname where there were a lot of plantations, and you, and you see the cruelties, and there are some reports of, of Dutch travelers who see the slave plantations and are absolutely horrified, and they're kicked out immediately. You know we can't have these people here, and so they're kicked out and shipped back home. <laughs> don't make any problems so it's um yeah um and and very few people do manage to uh you know to to do to buck any trends or like supersede their era that's just not what we as humans do that that, that is true as yeah that's absolutely true as well yes Uh, very few people are like are able to kind of see beyond what what is presented um, so I think we have, I've gotten here in the past few minutes, our discussion, I see the historiographical hole you wanted to fill this kind of holistic global story. Um, so do you have, do you have what you consider, can you tell me what you consider your overarching argument to be? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Like what a sucker punch right at the end. there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and with a book like this, it's really hard to say. Yeah, it's really hard. Although, I, uh, well, thanks uh, for this question. I, I should have known this. This was this was. Well, basically, there are there are two things. Uh, one of one of the things is that we wanted to um, uh, really present an, a, a sort of a, a, an integral story, an integral story in which which Europe and the rest of the world um, uh, are connected. So, and a lot of books about the Dutch Republic, about the Golden Age, are really about you know, the Netherlands, and then there are other books about the East India Company. Uh, and we felt we really wanted to write an integral story. Basically, it is, you know, it is, as the title says, it is about the Dutch in the world, wherever they are and whatever they do. Um, so so that, that was the first part. But, but the second part is really the sort of things that we talked about, that we wanted to explain that um, global history is is the history of, of a lot of different cultures um, and different people um, together, basically um, interacting with each other in, in, in very complex ways. Um, and, and we really wanted to, to explore how, you know, Dutch history or Dutch identity is not something that is simply there. You know, it developed um, in, in conversation with, uh, with other cultures and it changes in conversation with other cultures. Um, and I think that is, it's not an argument, of course, but, but that is really how uh, we see the story developing in our book. And of course, that is a 17th century story, but it's still a very uh, current story. You know, that is the story that we're still seeing uh, in the process of globalization. Uh, of course, it has a very different form now, but what you see here is, well, maybe the roots of, of globalization, of economic, political, religious, and, and cultural globalization. So this is sort of where it started. Uh, I think that's what we try to uh, try to explain, but but more, yeah, explain and and visualize um, and make clear to the reader in in all these kinds of stories. And I don't have a specific conclusion. I leave it up to the reader. Read the book, read the stories, read the anecdotes, um, see how people lived and what where they went and what they did, and um, and come up with your own conclusions. Great, that's an argument. That counts as an argument. Um, you. Well done. That was, that was a little bit of a, just a kind of right here at the end of the interview. Let me throw in this major question. Well done. Handled it beautifully. Um, 
So like, what was your favorite part of writing this? Do you have a favorite bit of the book or a person, a really great memory you want to share? Um, yeah, I think the, the, the part that I really enjoyed most was the, um, um, the presentation of um, sort of the artistic presentation of, of the 80 years war. So the 80 years war is really what, you know, the war of, of independence is, is for Americans. It's the 80 years war for us. Um, um, and and what I thought was really great and fascinating was the um, the way it sort of was presented. And you see this in paintings is something we uh, discussed, uh, but you also see it in the landscape. And I, I never realized it. So if I if I drive here through the Netherlands and suddenly I see a hill or a dike or or what they call here a schans, and suddenly I realized that you know this is really part of our very early story. So the way they changed the landscape to defend themselves against the Spanish. And also how the names, you know, a lot of the names of um, of specific areas in the landscape, but also, of course, they are gone now, but of local inns, uh, for instance, you know, inns used to have names of famous battles or famous persons who are fighting in the 80 years war. Um, and to me, this was a new way of, of seeing the world around me, you know, the physical material world in the city and on the countryside, uh, that you can really see the traces of the past. Um, and we wrote a little bit about that, and um, yeah, and and that fascinates me uh, whenever I drive around here. When we can, of course, because we are in lockdown. But you know, <laughs> out of lockdown, I'll see these things again, and I look forward to seeing them. <clears throat> we all do, right? The, the the in the after time when we can go places. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was looking at the the map right at the be the first first image in your book and there's the Zaudersee. There's like a body of water that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's completely, it's it's made into land famously, uh, of course. Um, but you also see, you know, the, the, the other uh, thing around what, what fascinated me is that Philip II uh, built the, uh, the Spanish Armada. He used so much wood that, you know, complete areas in Spain became deforested. Uh, and it, it completely disappeared. And, and Philip II was actually the first king of Spain who um, had a had a law that that some wood had had to be protected. You know, they were not allowed to um, 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 to get trees there because you had to defend and 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 um, not take care of the environment. And that is actually, you know, for me, it's a sort of a next step. I'm very interested in in religious history, but. I've become increasingly interested in uh, in climate history, but that's for a very different uh, other time, Jana. Uh, but but traces of this you can you can find in the book when we talk about the forest and 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 the sea and also the animals and um, you know it got me thinking that you know in a sense what we do here in this book it it's very much human history and of course um, there's so much more than human history. Um, so that's my next project. It's not about. Ah, <laughs> so yeah, well, that was my next question. It was what are you working on now? So an environmental history? Yeah, sort of. It's it's starting. I I've become very interested in uh, in missionary history, which is not so um, uh, original, but global missionary history, especially in this period. There's very few people who who worked on that, but I became interested in in the way that. Um, uh, um, uh, Protestantism in particular, but uh, re- religious institutions, uh, what their attitude is to towards climate, um, and you can see a little bit uh, about this this in the book. Not so much climate, but at least the environment. 
And, and typically for the early modern age, people are not interested in nature. They're not interested in climate, obviously, because they don't know very much about it. But they're also not too interested in animals. Uh, and what you can see, of course, that in the 18th, 19th century, this sort of develops until we come to, to the late 20th and early 20th, 21st century, when this becomes commonplace. But there's a very famous argument is that the whole reason why we have climate change, and this is a lot to take in, I, I realize, but the main reason why we have climate change is because of um, philosophies, religious attitudes that were developed in Europe in the late 15th and early 16th century. And that fascinates me. Uh, and that is because European culture and, um, uh, and, and Christian culture is very focused on humans. Um, and, and not so much about nature, which, of course, is very different from Hinduism or Buddhism. Um, and, and so basically in the West, also in the United States, of course, a very Protestant state and, and, and in Europe, um, there's this development of Protestantism. Protestantism basically says, you know, it's about God and it's about humans. And nature and the world is just, you know, it's just a stage where, where history takes place. It doesn't really matter. We can we can use it and um, city of man. And I think and traces of this are in the book. And suddenly I realized that you know there's there's a world out there. You know this this needs to be explored. And is it really true? Is it true that in the 17th century people didn't really care about nature? You know, part of the story we tell is that they started to explore. You know, they started to analyze plants. They started to um, analyze even the climate in the 18th century. People started to understand that sometimes in Africa it's dry and, and some other times it's not. Um, and so I think it's, it's the, the story is a little bit more complex. Um, and that's, that's what I, it sort of comes out of this book. There is one um, chapter on, on mission history and I, and I try to develop that a little bit further. So the relation between religion and climate, which as I don't need to explain to you is a very important topic as well in our, in our current world. Um, and in the United States, uh, but also in the Netherlands, it's uh, it, it's a major topic. Um, yeah, um, and you can see it. You know, I was just actually researching Kobus van der Sklosen, um, who's like the Dutch Robin Hood kind of. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I, because I have to do a presentation for my Dutch class, uh, of all things. Um, but it, there's all this conversation, like the stories are all about him and this band that hide out in the woods. Um, these impenetrable dark woods, and I'm like, where are those? Yeah, yeah, yes. We don't really have those so much here anymore. We don't have them anymore. They're disappeared, and of course, you know, it's it's like you say, you know, the the idea that specific places have a, a moral connotation, right? So the woods are bad in the early modern age. Nowadays, we like the woods, but in the 17th century, the woods are something evil or bad and dangerous. Well, uh, I mean, the robbers they... are. Yeah, the robbers, the wolves, they are dangerous, um, you know, but yeah, we look at them very differently now. And in part because they're not so dangerous. Um, they're not full of robbers and wolves. Yes. Anyway. Yeah. No, well, there are a few wolves now, but uh, uh, not, many. Oh, yeah. not many. Not many. All right. Well, yeah. This has been a delightful interview. Thank you so much for taking your time with me. Um, I, and I'm really excited about this new missionary history. Thank you. And uh, thanks for having me. And it's nice to re-reflect on your own uh, book. And um, thanks for some very good questions that made me think as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I want to do. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and Todd Zins. Thank you. Thank you, Jana.